You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley, titled Christmas Humility, from the series Christmas at Creekside. For more info, please visit creekside.org. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, if you would. Matthew chapter 2. One of the bad things about preaching is, you know, it's, it's pretty self-confronting. I don't always tell you when I preach out of my own experience um, what God's doing in my life, is some, but this is one of those where it is. I have been challenged in this area in a very recent season, and... Um, so I'm kind of talking, some, just learning some things with you. These aren't things that are necessarily new to me, not like I know it all, but have you ever noticed in your Christian faith and your walk that there'll be things that you know, but you have to relearn or you have to be reminded of? Yeah, I don't know if I like that, but it's, it's a good thing, and especially when it's confronting. So C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, there's one vice which no man in the world is free. It's a vice which everyone in the world loathes, when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves, and that is pride. And I've always said that, I, I really have a disdain for pride, and yet that's kind of one of the things that has been kind of flushed and uh, come to light in my life in recent season that I'm having to face and deal with. C.S. Lewis went on to say, he said, all other sins are more flea bites in comparison to pride because it leads to every other vice. And if we understand even just a general history of pride from the Scriptures, we would understand that. Pride caused a rebellious angel by the name of Lucifer, Satan, to be cast from heaven. If you read Isaiah chapter 14, you'll see where he had these I wills, these five I wills, where he said, I will ascend and I will be the... The, the, the leader, but he said five times, I will, and it was all about himself and what he would do. Pride caused Eve's downfall in the Garden of Eden. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to think like God. She wanted to have the same knowledge of good and evil that God had and experienced. I mean, really, pride is a, is a major source of so many of our issues and our problems. Proverbs 28, 23, 29, 23 says that a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. And I think, you know, I said, Lord, that's, that's what I want. I, I, I want to have a lowly spirit. I, I, I just, I want to be humble like you. I want to, I, I, that's what I want. And we're going to look at this story today where the story presents a contrast between the humility of the wise men that many of us are familiar with and the pride of King Herod. So if you would, I just want to read through this passage and then I'm going to come back and and make reference to a number of things in here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men, magi from the east, arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? He who has been born King of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Now, how many of you have a nativity scene at home? Raise your hands, yeah? Okay. 
Now, let me just give you some theological correction here. If, uh, how many, if you have wise men, there's wise men and there's shepherds, okay? If you have wise men next to the nativity scene, can I just recommend you do something? Do this. Take those wise men, and if your nativity scene is in the living room, take those wise men and put them in your bedroom. Okay? Here's the deal. The shepherds were at the birth of Jesus at the nativity scene. The wise men that we're talking about today came a couple of years later probably when he was a child. So you want to put them in, their, in your bedroom to be biblically correct because they're still on the journey. Okay? And uh, so just a, a little point of an understanding for that. So we're talking about the wise men, not the shepherds, who came when Jesus, they believe, was probably two or three years old. Now, when King Herod, this about the birth of Christ, he was deeply disturbed. Notice that he's disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, he's assembled all the chief priests, the scribes, and the people, and he asked them. See, these people had been waiting for hundreds of years. They had 400 years of silence, and they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so now there's this revelation of it. Uh, but King Herod has a little bit different slant. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, they, would, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel, which is Jesus. It's a prophesy hundreds of years earlier out of the book of Micah chapter 5. Well, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, and he asked, what is the exact time that the star appeared? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. And it led them until it came and it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overthrilled or overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, it's not a stable or it's not a place, it's a house, they saw the child, not a baby, with his mother, and falling to their knees, it says they worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They probably would have used these. There's some prophetic understanding of these gifts that I won't go get into today, but they probably used this as currency to travel with, and now they're going to, be, they're going to give this to, to, uh, to Jesus as an expression of their worship. And probably Mary and Joseph will be able to use this now when they have to flee to Egypt as currency to be able to travel. Well, they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream, uh, this is an important point here, uh, verse 12, it says, in a dream, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country, but by another route. Now, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and he took the child and, and, its, and his mother during the night and they escaped to Egypt and he stayed there until Herod's death. So what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled that out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was being, had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all of the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. 
Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was also fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, and Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. So we see this massacre of little children. I want you to see a few things about these wise men. I want you to see the humility of them. It's pretty impressive. We see in verse 1 that they, these guys, these were intelligent men, and they were still teachable. They weren't pompous. They weren't arrogant. Have you ever seen someone that knows everything? That they're unwilling to learn. They're unwilling to be open to new strains of thought. But these guys, they were intelligent, yet still very teachable. We don't know exactly where the Magi come from. It's probable that some part of Babylon, some areas of Babylon, but we're not sure. We don't know exactly what they saw in the sky, but we, and we don't know how long it took them to get from where they were to get to where Jesus was as a little boy. But there was something they were looking for. These bright, they were astronomers, and they were always studying the stars. And at this time, people had been looking for hundreds of years for the signs and the prophetic statements that had been spoken to the Messiah about the Messiah coming. And so as they're studying the stars, there was something that spoke to them and revealed something of God's will to them to begin to move. Now, if you talk to an astronomer, a lot of them, they'll, they'll say, well, what, what's, what's the, what, what do you think about this, you know, the star of Bethlehem? And, and you can read this, because I'm not an astronomer, and I don't really understand all of it, but it's, uh, I was reading about it. It's got some really fascinating reading, uh, just to, to, to see what they're doing nowadays with this. Uh, there's a guy named Dr. Craig Chester. He's co-founder of the Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy. And he, said, he wrote a paper on this, and you can look it up online. He says, with computers, we can now reverse the movement of the stars and know with almost exact certainty where the stars were located at the time of the birth of Christ. He documents a fascinating series of astrological events, um, ast astronomical events in the years of 3 and 2 B.C. And he says this, in September 3 B.C., Jupiter, the planet that represented a kingship came into conjunction with Regales, and it's the biggest star in the constellation of Leo, which is associated with the Lion of Judah. So the royal planet approached the royal star in the royal constellation representing Israel. Hang with me. Are you with me so far? The conjunction between Jupiter and Regales uh, was repeated not once but twice, and in February and May of 2 B.C. And then he writes, in June of 2 B.C., Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest objects in the star other than the sun and the moon experienced an even closer encounter with their di when their disks appeared to touch. Now, to the naked eye, they became a single object above the setting sun. This would have been an exceptionally rare spectacle, and it would not have been missed by the Magi. I love this because, see, what he's really saying here, and there's so much more to what he wrote, but, see, he says that God, you, you read this and you go, wow, God is not only all sovereign, but he's all powerful, that he could probably set up a temporary alignment of stars that would have probably hovered over, you know, a mile or so over above the stable of Bethlehem. Why do we believe something like that? Well, because we understand that nothing is impossible with God. That scripture comes out of Luke one thirty-seven, part of this here uh, the, the narrative, the, the Christmas narrative. Bible says that when Christ, the Bible says that Christ was literally crucified in God's plan from the foundations of the earth, the creation of the world. That somewhere in the Hollywood, howl, the Hollywood howl, halls of heaven, 
the triune God came together and they enacted the plan of salvation of when Jesus would be crucified. And then it says in Galatians 4.4 4, that when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth His Son. And we understand that as you do some research that you'll see that it was it, historically it was right, politically it was right, uh, economic times were right, Roman was in charge, everything was really in place that made it possible only for Jesus to come, but then from there through his life and his death and his resurrection for the gospel to begin to spread. I, I can't help but believe and think that maybe at that same time, centuries in advance, God arranged for the movement of these stars to precisely coincide with the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. One of the characteristics, loved ones, of humility that I think we see here is a teachable spirit that is eager to learn and to continually pursue the things of God. Because these guys could have stood back and they could have been very passive and they could have just studied the stars, but they said, no, we've got to find out what this is. And they begin to pursue it. Proverbs 11, 2 says this, that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So here's the deal. You want to become wise? Become humble. Because to the degree that we walk in humility will probably be the degree that we're continually pursuing the things of Jesus Christ and pursuing His life. Because when we're not pursuing Him, that probably tells us what? That we can do it on our own. We can figure everything out on our own. The great wisdom will come in humility. I want you to see, too, these guys are spiritual, but they're seekers. They were wealthy, but they continued to seek the, the life of God. They were well off, but they were spiritually sensitive. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he's making this ridiculous comparison of a camel going through the eye of a needle. But he adds right after that, he says, now that's impossible with man, but hear this, all things are possible with God. Why was he telling that little story? Because it just seems so random. Well, it's because this, you know what he's saying? Is that it's, it's really hard for people that are rich, people that are well off, people that have a lot of resources, it can be really hard for them to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because the more resources you have, the more self-reliant you are. Not for all, but some. That's what I love about a lot of Creeksiders. We have people that are, would be considered well off here, but there's still a humility. But in general, the warning is, is the more people have, the more reliant they become on themselves and the more they begin to think, look what I have accrued. And they have this self-sufficiency that is imagined because of their increased resources. And it's at that point that when a person becomes really wealthy, they feel like, you know, I really don't need God. I can handle this on my own. Psalm 49.20 says this, that a man who has riches without understanding is like the animals that perish. You know what? We're all going to end it. It's all going to, we're, we're going to die. We're not going to be able to take it with us. You know, you don't have an animal that can take anything with it. Neither can we. And so what I want you to see, loved ones, is even though these magi were, they were influential, they were wealthy, they still had this humility about them and a spiritual hunger to pursue the things of God. And they didn't carry with them this arrogant spirit. 
Here's an important point. You're going to like this because there's another indication of their humility that we don't want to overlook because they were men. You know what they did? They stopped and asked for directions. <laughs> I thought, now, you know, how humble can you be if you're a man? So what did they do? They come to Jerusalem and they said, we understand a king was born. Where is he? Now, a lot of you women, you don't understand why that's so hard. Because, you know, when you get lost, if you're a guy, I mean, I'm not kidding you. If I'm within 20 miles of something, I just figure I got this kind of manly GPS that's going to help me find it, you know? The truth is, guys are, 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 are figure-it-outers. And we believe we can figure out anything. And if I just get close, I'm going to be able to find it. I mean, I don't want to walk into a 7-Eleven and go, hey, I think I'm lost, you know? To a complete stranger, can you tell me how to get there? I don't know if they're going to tell me the right way. Now, thank goodness that we now have GPSs. But gals, you got to understand how we think. I don't want to go to a stranger and have them give me directions. A few years ago, one of the gals at Creekside sent us a Christmas card, and this is what she put inside of it. She said, do you know what would have happened if there had been wise women instead of wise men? They would have asked for directions sooner. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, clean the stable, and given much more practical gifts. <laughs> I, I think that's probably, I have to admit, very true. But there's a humility in asking for directions, isn't there? There's a, a humility in seeking God. Say, where, where can I find, where can I find Jesus? But these wise men, they were wise, but they were also very worshipful. I think their humility is best evidenced in the fact that they were adults. And they come and they pursue this little child. Verse 11 says, on coming to the house, they saw the little child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They're not worshipping a mature man. They're not worshipping a dignified king, but a small child who was born to peasants in this obscure village. It wasn't in a palace. It was in a very... Modest house, and I think that there's a that speaks to great humility. These wise men, they, they come and offer their gifts to the Christ child. I mean, don't we do that if someone invites you to their home? Isn't kind of the, the common, thankful, appreciative, respectful thing to do? It's just to take some small gift or token that says, I respect you and I appreciate the fact that you would have invited us over. But they're coming and they're taking from their treasures, as I said. This probably would have been kind of a way that would have resourced their trip. And they didn't give it out of compulsion. They gave it because there was an expression of worship. See, we oftentimes just see our worship as coming here on Sunday morning and we have wonderful worship and singing and then you know, we'll have a time in the Word. We'll have some connections with one another. But our worship always includes our giving. The first time worship is mentioned in the New Testament, loved ones, it's right here. And what do we see? The Magi aren't going to a church service. They're doing two things. They're encountering and coming to bow before the living God. And our worship will always cost us something. First Chronicles 16.29 says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So worship and humility will always come where we will give an expression of giving to the living God. Now, let me 
just parenthetically add something here that I, that, that I want to say. You do an incredible job overall as a church. I, I, I don't know who gives what and, you know, all, I don't know. But, but here's what I know. There is this, this giving that just seems to take place around here. And uh, here we are, we're over $150,000 in our harvest offering. And that's just amazing. And yeah, we can sure clap for that. That's, you know, almost 20% more than last year. And I'm not kidding you, you know, me of little faith, I go, whoa, we're even going to be able to come close this year. And then to exceed it like that, I just go, Lord. To me, hear me, loved ones, that, that, that speaks, I believe, to our growing greater hearts toward God. I mean, yeah, probably some of us are doing better financially, but my, you know, there's this grip of open hands that I love to hear and to see. I just heard... Um, uh, Dustin come and told me yesterday that somebody had made a significant donation to the crab feed. And then they go, oh, and by the way, when is the, the other one, the other auction for the kids to go to camp? I'm going to make one for that too. And I just go, only God. You know, only God does this kind of stuff. Because I don't, you know, I'm not punching your... You know, your face trying to get you to give or anything. And, and then I get a, I get a and, and this is really, I think you'll like this story. I, this last week I received a card from somebody, this young man who grew up in this church, come to Christ here. His parents come to Christ here back in the early 2000s. He's 30 years old now, so he was probably coming here from the time he was about 10 to 17. Uh, both of his parents have passed away. He now lives in Kentucky, and he's doing pretty good. So he comes and he visits here last August. And he's, he, said, he, he you know, grabs me, and I recognized him because he's a big kid, big young man. And uh, he was just glad to be here and said, you know, I moved and I wanted to come when I did some business here and visit. So I get a card from him this week, and it says, hey, I remember when, when I was a young teenager how Creekside for a couple of Thanksgivings and Christmases helped out our family. And that's what we do. If you need help, let us know. But... We did it for families in the community, and we did it for his family here. And so he says, I remember that so distinctly. He's 30 years old, and he sends a check for $500. And he says, what I want you to do is, is I want you to bless another family because it meant so much to me, even as a youngster when I did that. Now, there's not a lot of 30-year-olds that do that. But, but, but here's the point. Is, 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 is we, we don't like to hear this, but it's really true. When you're a giving and a generous person and you're offering your treasures, it's because God's doing something in your heart and in your life. And that's what blesses me so much. It's, one, it's not the, but it's a wonderful indicator that I believe we're growing in our worship and our humility for the living God. Now, let's look at Herod. I don't like Herod. Because, well, he's got a pride problem, and I don't like this because it's where I'm living right now. There's nothing worse than having sin and pride and, and these ugly things become your mirror, and you have to be, and you begin to, you know, understand and see it. You know, it's easy to see it in somebody else, isn't it? But it really is kind of hard to see it in ourselves. 
And when you see it, it's pretty ugly. Matthew 2, 3 says this, when Herod heard this, that the king of the Jews was born, he was disturbed. Why was he born? Well, he's a little bit paranoid. It wasn't because of a concern for his people that he was ruling over because he oppressed them. It wasn't because he was concerned that somebody might usurp the throne from his sons or inherit it because he was brutal to them. One historian noted that Herod was a murderous man. Another one wrote this, Herod was a tyrant, a cruel and greedy man. He was closer to a mafia figure than a political personality. He often resorted to murder to eliminate his opponents. He had a wife named Marianne that he killed, and he killed three sons of his. I noted last week that, uh, that the joke around Rome was that it was safer to be, better to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. He'd have a better chance of living. There's so much pride in this man. When he was close to death, he got some, some of his leaders around him. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and, and bring together 100 elite citizens in this area. He knew he was going to be dying soon. And he said, the moment that I die, I want every one of those 100 people executed so people will cry when I die. Well, when he died, they actually didn't execute those people, but they did, they did round him up. That's how, that's how sick he was. That's how much pride that he had. Where does this come from? Where does some of the pride come from? Well, it comes from uncontrolled competition. See, this king, this King Jesus that was born, even as a child, was a threat to his power. See, pride is often a very competitive thing. Now, now hear me. This is really important. Maybe it's because I'm competitive. But competitive is not a bad thing. I, I'm convinced that com- competition and being a competitive person helps somebody get to where they need to go. Here's the deal. It can't be unbridled or uncontrolled competitiveness. See, every good point, every good part of our life, every good trait and attribute of our life always has a dark side. And competition is the same way. Competition can be that thing that fuels you forward and propels you and motivates you to become better. Or it can be the thing that begins to use, that you use against people to elevate yourself. It becomes unhealthy when its contentment is determined by its standing in relation to other people around you, where you have to beat everybody. You have to win at everything. And it begins to affect the way that you relate to people. Remember the fairy tale, Snow White, when the wicked queen, she would ask in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? She was content when? As long as she was the fairest. She was number one. But one day, she goes to the mirror, and what happens? It's no longer her. It is now Snow White is the fairest and the prettiest. Well, what's interesting about that is what? Well, the queen wasn't any less attractive. It's just that for some reason now, it's Snow White. And suddenly she's disturbed and she wants to eliminate the competition. That's exactly what Herod does. There's competition and he wants to eliminate it. Now, what's interesting about this, it's really kind of silly, but this is what happens when you become overly or uncontrolled in your competition. Think about Herod. Uh, Historians say that he was probably in his late 60s now, anywhere from 65 to 69. So for this little child to grow up, 
probably would have been a minimum of 25 years up to 35 or 40 years before he could actually even take over the throne. So that would have put Herod probably in his late 80s, late 90s, potentially into his hundreds, and he would have been out long before that. And he, this is what competition does. It makes you miss see everything in your life because he was already sick at this time and he only had two more years to live. That's kind of what unhealthy competition and pride can do for us. It's also self-deceiving. Romans, excuse me, Proverbs 28, 13 says this, the one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Here's the deal, loved ones. Uh, Humility is transparent. Humility will own its stuff. It will admit its sin. But pride will always excuse, blame, not take responsibility. You know why? Because pride doesn't want to be found out. It's afraid that if people see me for who I am, who I really am, They'll not respect me. I'll lose my influence. And so I'd rather fake it. And that's not a good way to live. And this is so subtle. Because most of the time, I'll say for me, you don't see it until something happens. And it's usually not good. Hopefully it's a wake-up call before it's a downfall. Because obviously it says in Proverbs that, that pride ultimately leads to, de, to, to devastation and to destruction. And so hopefully where there's pride, it begins to be mirrored in our lives some way so that we, li- so we see it before it causes destruction. But it's so subtle. I was in Florida last year and uh, I was at the Global Leadership Summit. So there's all these leaders there and we're getting trained and prepped for having the Global Leadership hosting it here. And I was at this training, and I needed, I was in the, I was getting into this elevator, and there was a bunch of people in it, and walked in, and I needed to go to another floor. And I'm sure some of you have done this. But uh, the floor go, I mean, the elevator goes, and all of a sudden, I get there. I'm not paying attention because there's so many people around me. I step off the elevator and start walking, and I realize, uh-oh, wrong floor. And there's about 30 people back in the elevator. So I've gotten these nanoseconds. I've got to make a quick decision. Do I look really silly and go back and go, hi, everybody, I'm back, you know, and uh, wrong step, or do I just keep going? And I just decided to do what? Keep going. Because I didn't want anyone to think that anybody would be so, you know, silly to not get on the, off on the right floor, especially with a bunch of leaders. So, so I mean, I walked like 30 steps past the elevators and down the hallway, so I just kind of looked like, hey, yeah, well, I'm going to my room, you know, all's cool. And then I, you know, and then I had to get to the session, so I run up the steps, and I get up there, and all of these people had already gotten off the elevator, and they're kind of milling around and walking around, and these are the people that I saw, gotcha. And that's what happens sometimes with pride. I mean, it always gets exposed. And we kind of want to wear this mask because we don't want people to think that maybe we're not what we are. 
And see, that's what, that's what Herod did. He pretended. And then he wanted to manipulate his situation. This is what he said. You go find the Messiah, come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. That wasn't his agenda. His agenda was that he wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill the child. So this whole thing, man, it can be pretty self-deceiving. Second, you know what? It, it can be self-serving as well. Pride is really self-serving. See, Herod couldn't stand someone else to be the king. So he commanded what? The extinction, the massacre of all male babies that had born in the last two years. Now understand, this probably, this wouldn't have been like, you know, a, 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 a holocaust of hundreds. It probably would have been under a hundred children, not to diminish that number, but you know, sometimes we, we, we get these big numbers and we think that. It would have, this was a really small area that he was overseeing of people. But imagine the impact on these families as Roman soldiers that come rumbling through town, throw your doors open and grab a child and just kill it. I mean, let's just think of it this way. How many of us in this room have either a child or a grandchild that's under two years of age? See? Yeah, we've got a pretty good amount of people here. Think of what that would do to your family. Think of what that would do to just this community right here if that was taking place. And this began to affect all of communities. See, pride can reach the, the point where the feelings of others don't matter at all as long as your purposes are served. Pride doesn't always act rationally at its peak. C.S. Lewis said it this way, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So here's the call. The call is to humble ourselves. To humble yourself. And that's really what I want us to be mindful of this Christmas season. Because everything that Jesus did in coming as a baby, in taking on the, 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 the presence of man as God, was all about humility and humbling himself. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, And all of you, Clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He will exalt you in due time. And hear me, this is good. I don't like this either because it puts the responsibility back on me. See, God doesn't say, I will humble you. He says, you humble yourself. Let me give you just a quick insight. You don't want God to humble you. You know, it, you know that. See, you want to do it. And I think that's why God says it. Because ultimately, if you don't, He will. And I've had that happen, and that's never pretty. But He says here, I want you to humble yourself. This is Peter. You know who Peter is, don't you? He was probably the least humble of all the disciples. He's the guy that knew everything. He was the one that spoke first and thought later. He's the one that had mint-flavored sandals, and he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's the one that always acted first and then did later. I mean, excuse me, thought later. 
There wasn't hardly an ounce of humility in this man. And now we're looking 30 or 40, uh, 30 years later, and what does he do? Humble thyself from the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt. You know what I love about this? There's hope for me. Oh, don't laugh. There's hope for you, too. <laughs> I'm not the only one in here that, you know, I don't think. I probably am. I'm sorry. I'm not going to put my stuff on you. But there's hope for me that if I will humble myself, okay, I can work through this stuff. Well, what do you mean? Well, how does, how does this kind of happen? Well, let me go down to verse 12. We see what did these wise men do? They obeyed the word of the Lord. Verse 12 says this, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. You know what? They didn't pridefully say, you know what? We got this figured out. We can deal with Herod on our own. We, you know what? We know a better track. We know a better way. We know a shorter way. We'll go with that. No. They listened to the word of the Lord, and they went another way. They went God's way. You want to tell the maturity of someone? Tell them no. Tell somebody no, and you'll begin to see the maturity of somebody. How they respond, how they react, what they do. You want to tell this, you want, you, you want to kind of gauge your own spiritual maturity? It's how well you listen to the Lord when He says, do this, when He says, don't do that. When he says, this is kind of an issue over here, we need to face this. When he tells you something you don't want to do. When he says, I want you to go another route. See, loved ones, that's really what spiritual maturity comes down to. It's when we begin to listen, we begin to respond, we begin to move on the things that God says to us. And that's how we become humble. Because we know we don't have all the answers. We know we're not always right. And we begin to see some of these, these vestiges of sin that begin to take root in our life. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a way we're talking. Maybe it's this. Maybe whatever it is. And when God says, I want to change that, I want you to begin to go another route in your life. We got two options. I can say, yeah, I'll get to that later. Ah, just Or we go, yeah, Lord, you're right. You know the best route. I'm in the place that I am right now because I blew through some yellow lights. There's some things that I got to do, and I'm going to do them. I don't want to do them, but I'm going to do them for the first of the year, so I'm not carrying excess baggage into the new year. That's how you humble yourself, loved ones. As you come to a Sunday morning like this, and the Lord begins to speak to your heart, and, and He gives you a thought. Or tomorrow morning, you're going to get up, and you're going to read the Bible, and your God's going to speak to you, and you're going to go, that's for me. And you go, yes, Lord, I'm going to move on that. Or next Thursday, you're driving in the car, and you hear somebody on the radio speaks to you, and you go, oh, got to deal with that. See, loved ones, that's how you humble yourself.
You don't have all the answers. And you don't see everything about your wife that is causing issues, but Jesus does. And through the power of His Spirit, He'll guide you. He'll direct your route. And He'll say, this is the way. Walk in it. So here's the call to the humble king. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 30, uh, Matthew 18, 3 through 4. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't, isn't, isn't this thing called humility kind of a slippery virtue? I mean, it's kind of like when you think you have it, guess what? You don't. You ever seen someone, oh, you know, pretty humble, <laughs> kind of that total package. I don't think that's humility, but we kind of think that, don't we? I mean, I do. I, I've thought that. I thought, and I thought, I wouldn't use the word humility, but I'd say, well, I'm in a good place. And all of a sudden, you get this other expression from the Lord. No, you're not. I want to deal with this. The message paraphrases Philippians 2 about Jesus this way, and it says this, love each other. Don't push away. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own way, your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself, that he had equal status with God but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Pride lets go of position. Pride lets go of being right. Excuse me. Humility doesn't cling to position. It doesn't cling to always being right. It lets it go. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privilege. Instead, he lived a selfless life. That's the story of Christmas, loved ones. Jesus Christ humbly sacrificed for himself to the point of dying on a cross. I don't do a lot of things right, a few things here and there. But some years ago, I was, my son, they had a paper route, the Gazette. So I wanted him to learn to work and raise money or money and stuff. And so I don't know why I did this. It was really not smart. But I drove him around for about two years doing this paper route three times a week. The paper route was in the bowels of Martinez. You know, the hills and it's where everything's a lot more compact, older Martinez. And so one morning we're driving and I'm in a hurry and I blast into a curb. And it was just a real tight turn. I was going fast, trying to throw papers. And I blast into a curb. And this is, this is in the bowels, and I don't even know where I am hardly. And uh, the, my, my front right tire explodes. And so I had to pull it over. Well, Joel, uh, he was probably about 12 years old then, maybe 11. And whenever he'd do the paper out, he would just get out of bed and go in and you know, he wouldn't put on shoes or anything. So I can't drive the car. It's, I mean, it's, the front end is all messed up. So we got to walk back home. Didn't have a cell phone with me. So Joel, get out. Dad, I don't have any shoes on. Oh, great. I did. 
So I had to take, I took my shoes off and, and I gave them to him. And, and then I just walked about probably, I don't know, two miles in my socks. And he had his shoes. And it's amazing, you know, you say, well, boy, that was probably a bad day for a paper route. Yeah, kind of was. But there's something when you sacrifice for somebody that really kind of builds you and makes you warm inside, and then you can't deny that you can use it for leverage for down the road. I, uh, two lessons, I always reminded him, you'll wear shoes every time we go, and then secondly, you owe me. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't do that? He didn't say you owe me. He just says, you know what? I sacrifice for you. And, and that's what the Christmas story is about, loved ones, is that we learn to sacrifice our pride and exchange it for humility. And that we become people who are willing to serve the people around us.